Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you with us here this morning here at First Christian Church, uh, both in the West and the East, and to our friends in Lovington. We're very glad you're here. I'm, I, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team here, and we're going to look at Scripture together today. If you'll take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of Jude. Grab one in the pew rack in front of you in the East, pardon me, in the West and in Lovington in the East. There's some folk moving around with one right for you right now. Jude, it's almost towards the very end. The last book in the Bible is Revelation, and the book right before that is called Jude, all right? So while you're looking for Jude, let me tell you about a tradition that used to be in place. It's no longer, but a tradition that was found in Centralia, Centralia, Pennsylvania. Centralia was a coal mining town uh, with roots that go back to the mid-1800s, and for many years, coal was the driving force. The more coal that was needed across the nation, then uh, the better the Centralia's economy was. And uh, they had a tradition there that they no longer have. It stopped in 1962, but up until 1962, in an effort to save money, they said, well, wait, we got all this garbage that the town produces each year, and we've got a landfill. We're going to run out of space in the landfill at the rate we're going, so how do we get the landfill to be less full? Once a year, they would set up a big bonfire and burn whatever could burn. And that's what they had done for a number of years, um, decades upon decades, until 1962, um, when um, the tradition got them in trouble, and as a result, Centralia is now abandoned. There's nobody living there anymore as a result of what happened in 1962. See, in May of that year, the city council gave the green light for the annual landfill burn. But compared to other years, <clears throat> they moved the site of where the burn was going to take place, unaware that when they moved it and they lit it on fire, it was above an old um, coal mine. And there was a vein of coal that came right up to the surface. And when they lit the bonfire, they caught the coal on fire. Now, you know, so it's, it's burning a little bit underground. So the fire department showed up, they put it out, and they thought everything was well. Until a few days later, that fire and the coal underground carried on, on, and on. And... It, be, it was still smoldering, and then a few days later, smoke began coming up through various places in the ground throughout town. What was the problem? Well, they had had these boreholes that they had to bring fresh oxygen down to the people who were working in the mine. <clears throat> Excuse me, and that, those boreholes were bringing fresh oxygen down to the fire. So they tried a lot of things over the next 10 years to try and put out the fire, and um, none of them worked. Until the 1970s, it began to be a little bit alarming. One day, one of the owners of a gas station in town noticed that there was, I didn't know this, but I guess there's temperature controlling units inside the underground tanks. And he noted that the temperature of his gasoline was suddenly 180 degrees Fahrenheit. That's not good news when you've got gasoline in those tanks, right? More and more smoke starts coming up out of the ground. Um, <laughs> it's almost as if the fires of hell are right down there. This is a preacher's best thing, right? <clears throat> Not really, but nonetheless. The fiery chasms of hell are right underneath. It's funny, but it's not funny, I know. <laughs> Carbon monoxide levels skyrocketed, and eventually, by the mid-70s, they were forced to close the mines. Everybody thought, okay, we're just going to let the thing burn, and it'll, it'll well... No. February 1981, a little 12-year-old boy. His name is Todd Dombrowski. Todd's walking along one day, and he notices over there, 
there's some, some smoke coming out of the ground again. And he goes over to look at what's coming out of the ground. And as he arrives, a sinkhole engulfs him. Like the fiery furnaces, furnaces of hell are going to grab him. And he reached out and grabbed a hold of a branch. His brother pulled him in. I mean, his, his cousin pulled him to safety. And with that, the state of Pennsylvania said, everybody has to leave. In fact, the zip code by order of Congress was actually canceled for Centralia in 1992. The town is no longer there. Only the remains of where people left are what's left behind. Greg Walter of People Magazine said this way, even the dead cannot rest in peace in Centralia, Pennsylvania. Graves in the town's two cemeteries are believed to have dropped into the abyss of fire that rages below them. Oh, this should be great preacher stuff right here. The fires of the abyss that rages below. Ah. <clears throat> Excuse me. The story fascinates me. The photos you saw and the video you saw of pavement cracked and destroyed by heat and smoke. It killed an entire town, if you will. It's some... Um, Frankly, stuff that Jude talks about. Well, Jude doesn't talk about Centralia, I know. But he does talk about people who might sit at a table with you, scoffers of Christian faith, those who wouldn't believe what you believe if you're a follower of Jesus today. And they are diametrically opposed to Christian faith. And they are like, he says, people that need to be snatched from the fire. They are burning underneath you and you may not even realize it. Let's see how he put it. Jude, verse 17. Dear friends, he says, by the way, remember that Jude is Jesus' half-brother. So he's raised in Jesus' house. He says, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. So he said there's something coming. They foretold. This is something coming in the future. They said to you, in the last times. I don't know if we're in the last times, but in the last times, sometime, he said, Jude's saying in the future, There'll be scoffers. Do we have scoffers in our day? We probably do. People who don't believe in, I'm not probably, absolutely, right? In the last times, there'll be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, don't have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith, by praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. So they're doubters and they're scoffers and you should be merciful to them. Save others by snatching them from the fires of Centralia, Pennsylvania. Oh, I just added that there, okay? But, okay. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So for the last few weeks, we've been looking at this passage of Scripture. And uh, throughout the book of Jude, he keeps having this concern that he's saying, okay, there's people who don't agree with your faith. There's people who don't agree that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What are you supposed to do about that? And he says, remember, focus on the things that are true. Keep the matters that are true, truth. The matters that are false, declare them as such. In today's passage, the same as what we looked at, carries on with that same theme. In the last times, in the last days, there'll be scoffers who follow their own ungodly desires. And I, I, I mentioned to you last week that I don't know if we're living in the last times, but regardless, I am certainly aware that we have plenty of scoffers of Christian faith around us. They don't agree with Christian faith. They de deride those of us who are followers of Jesus. And consequently, if that's the case, regardless if we're not in the, the last times, the fact that we have scoffers, we must ask, what would he say we should do in the face of scoffers? Some responses. Build up your faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. 
keep on loving. And to those who don't believe, engage them with mercy. And our goal, as we've been looking throughout the book of Jude, is to help each of us build up our faith. What does it mean when we say we are followers of Jesus Christ? We've been, if you will, emphasizing a common belief that we hold here at First Christian Church, that we believe the Scripture is God-breathed. It's the God-breathed ultimate authority in our lives. That is the beginning and the bedrock of our faith. It's the rule of our lives as individuals. What Scripture has to say is the rule of life for us as a congregation. And so consequently, as a church, we, we are very clear that when the Bible says something, we're going to say it. When the Bible comes out and says this, this is what we're going to say. On the matters where the Bible is silent, we're probably not going to say a lot, or whatever we do say is simply going to be opinion, and fair enough. But at that, that point, we can have differing ways of approaching our opinions. By the way, like last week, you'll notice that our congregation's statement of faith is in today's program. We wanted you to have it so that you would be able to see what we as a congregation hold as biblical truth. That the issues that are mentioned in today's program are the issues that we say these are where the scriptures, these are the matters to which the scriptures speak. And these are then for us, these are absolutes because we believe the Bible is full of truth. In fact, we believe the Bible is more than just full of truth. We believe the Bible is truth. And so the issues as presented on that statement of, of faith are non-negotiables for us because they are found in Scripture. For example, as we build up our faith, this is what we believe is presented in the truth of Scripture regarding our need for Jesus Christ's work in our lives. The Bible says, and we believe it, that all humanity is created by God. And Scripture states that given the way in which we are created and given humanity's uniqueness and then given what Adam and Eve experienced, we'll look at that more some next week, but given that, Scripture says we are all in need of forgiveness, and theologically, the language we use is saying we need salvation. We have a very specific understanding of what Jesus' role is in that salvation. It's a common belief for all Christians, for the most part, not everybody, but basically, yes. We believe, Christians believe, that our eternal destiny in heaven is only assured through Jesus' death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection three days later. What does that mean, Wayne? Well, here's what we're saying. We're saying, this is what we believe the scriptures say. We live on this earth, and then we're not nihilists, that once you die, you're just gone. No, we are, we are spiritual beings that once our bodies die, then there's heaven or hell. And the only way you get to heaven, the only way you have that eternal life is through the work of Jesus Christ. Eternal life is offered, Scripture says, to only those who follow Jesus. It's a gift from God given in grace. We don't do anything to deserve it. We just simply accept it. And I will tell you, say, well, Wayne, are you saying only Christians are saved? Well, yeah. Scripture says that. Now, I will tell you, there are days as a human being... And I look around the world, I want to go, man, I wish the Bible wouldn't indicate that all roads lead to heaven. All, road, all roads lead up the mountain. Because there are many fine people of other faiths who are very devout. They're desperately devout. And if devotion were the key, we'd have to say that there are some who are far more devoted in their faith than some Christians are. And some of us even here today would be in rough shape if it was all based on devotion. But that's, so if that was the case, if you have to be this devoted, you have to be 
57 or 70, let's call it 77% devoted to make heaven. What if you only get to 76%? How would you ever know? And you get to life after death and they go, mm, you didn't make the grade, you only got 76%. How's that gonna work? That's the whole point of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Jesus came and took away the percentages and said, if you accept me as, God, as God's son, then the you're in. Jesus himself put it this way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's a tremendous claim. If it's truth, then we have to follow that. If it's not truth, then Jesus was a charlatan and not worth following at all, right? And since Christians claim to say that what Jesus said was truth, then we have a responsibility to do as he asked or frankly as he commanded as the Son of God. And that leads us to some responsibilities as individuals and responsibilities as a, as a church. Christians are people who say, we're gonna rely on your grace and then Jesus, you, we are granting you charge of our lives and our actions. In other words, we call that living under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We decide to grant charge of our lives and our actions to Jesus. And we say, Jesus, you are the Lord of who we are. Basically, it means that Jesus is our leader, he's our commander, and he, he's more than just some ancient sage that's got some stories in a book called the Bible, and he gives out some wise tips for living now and then. No. We believe he's the Son of God. He is the Savior of our souls, and consequently, we are charged with the responsibility to follow his example in all matters. And our unwillingness or inability to do that at times is really what gives scoffers some ammunition when it comes to their view of, of Christianity. They've seen how some followers of Jesus have acted. They've seen how I've acted. They've seen how you've acted. And sometimes, perhaps often, we don't act or look like Jesus, do we? We certainly don't look like his representatives. And we've blown it over and over again. For example, um, this past week, we had a two-day seminar here in our building for those with many people attending from outside the life of our congregation. And the seminar was focused on how can we care for people within the LGBT community? Because too often the church, capital C, and too often congregations and individual Christians have not displayed Christ's character in telling same-sex attracted people about the Bible's understanding of sexuality. We've labeled people. We've destroyed their lives. We've um, spoken to them without compassion. We've allowed fear to lead the discussion instead of Jesus' instructions that you should only throw stones if you don't have any sin yourself. So, those of us who were in attendance, we were trying to learn how to care and talk and love, all while holding very tightly and honoring a historic and traditional biblical viewpoint about sexual practices. We learned how to speak to sin issues with compassion and open arms. See, when it comes to that matter and any other matters, we've often let the scoffers scare us. They've got real loud voices at times and 
You know, they hold the sway of the culture around us at times. And so we've backed off because we've heard them say, you Christians shouldn't judge. Jesus said, don't judge. And we've got to say that's absolutely true. He did say that. However, Jesus also expected us to recognize non-biblical behavior. He expected us to evaluate the culture around us and to determine how to lead other people to Jesus Christ and then to lead them to better behavior, to more holy behavior. Our evaluating can never be top-down. We can never be sitting in the judges, at the judge's bench looking down at a bunch of defendants. No. How do we evaluate? Like this. Hey, I'm striving to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and I've got sin in my life. Can I walk along life with you? Can I walk the road with you? That's a far more compassionate and manageable approach. See, I would remind you that if we're followers of Jesus Christ, then we have both a responsibility to speak to the culture and to also speak to, to the people around us. Here's why. Scripture says that the church, you and me, we are the hope of the world as we shine like stars in the sky as we hold, out, fir, hold firmly to the word of life. We've got to hold firmly to the word of life, to Scripture, the word of God, and at the same time shine like stars. It's, I'm reminded of how Jesus came. You know, John the Apostle says in John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Jesus came as God in the flesh, full of grace and truth. If it's all just truth and no grace, it's not very palatable. If it's all grace and no truth, it's not very effective. You've got to have both. And the culture around us is looking to us to see how we're going to shine. Are we going to shine like God's stars, holding to the word of God, holding to the word of life, to the word of truth, and at the same time extending grace? Because my observation is this, friends, that the culture around us is like a runaway train careening out of control, running down a track without an engineer, headed for disaster. That's not a new understanding of society, but that's, they've been doing that for a lot of years. And we are responsible to name it as such, but then to act with graceful actions and graceful responses accordingly. Here's what I mean. A couple weeks ago now, November 6th, an iron ore train in Australia, Western Australia, out, out in the outback, where they dig up a lot of iron ore and they load them into these really long trains, it began traveling down the tracks in Western Australia with no engineer on board. Now, the engineer had stepped off to check out of one of the wagons, one of the cars that didn't, didn't seem to be running right or something or other, and when he left the train, the train left without him. Now, I don't know how that happens. It must have been in gear. I would assume that as it left, his job left with, him, with it as well. But nonetheless, that's probably a different matter. But we have trains. The longest trains that we have here in the U.S. usually are about 140 cars long. This train, catch this, full of iron ore, heavy dirt, heavy stuff scooped out of the ground. This train was 268 cars long, over four miles long. He watched it disappear. That's a lot of cars. You think you count the cars when you're standing down on Main Street waiting for an ADM train to go by? And it's 40 cars? And you're going, this is never going to end? Imagine 268 cars traveling down the track without an engineer for 57 minutes at 68 miles an hour. That's how fast it was going. 57 minutes for, with 268 cars going at 68 miles an hour. Until... Tom Cruise showed up and he got you know, the helicopter. <laughs> Mission impossible. No, you know what they did? 57 minutes in, 
They derailed it by remote control. Now, I want to tell you, friends, that is one powerful clicker. <laughs> derailed a whole train four miles long. If you could get me that remote control, that you, whatever is that, I'd like that because I would like all the information in front of me, the TV, the VCR, all that stuff to go on and off at the same time. Wouldn't that be marvelous to have a clicker that did that? I know there's such a thing. I'm just teasing. But that's a powerful... <laughs> Imagine when you've got 268 cars full of iron ore the mess it makes. And imagine how much it costs to clean it up. Friends, it's a picture of our present culture where the Bible is no longer regarded as truth. It's become, well, a convenient source of wisdom if you might want to look at it. And the soon coming result to the inattention of what Scripture says will be further chaos. Further chaos. Because you can name any number of issues around our world today where you'd say human activity has walked away from what Scripture says and the result is chaos. Right, can I give you just a, a, a short list of, and think about what human activity has done with these matters that we've taken actions and, and taken positions that are anti-biblical. Let's start with global warming. The Bible says to take care of the earth. And have we done that? Apparently not. What about sexual misconduct and abuse? The Bible says, live your way this way, and we've not paid to that, attention to that. What about child abuse? The Bible says to take care of kids this way. We're not doing that appropriately. The Bible says things about abortion and greediness and anarchy being promoted by all sorts of politicians in the U.S. and abroad. There are wars and rumors of wars and chaos. All non-biblical responses to these situations in front of us, and they're coming as a result of our unwillingness or, if you will, our inability all this human activity because we no longer endorse what the Bible has to say. And we've got a, we've got a world that is running at far more than 68 miles per hour in a long train that's about to crash, it seems. No conductor on board. However, even if that is the case, I would like to tell you, friends, it's not a poor, poor us viewpoint. It's alarming, yes, but not debilitating. What is it? It's a mandate for the people of Jesus Christ to be light and words and his tangible touch in our community and around the world. It's a mandate for us to promote his leadership in our lives. See, because as we build up our faith, what does Jude require us to do? He says, pray in the Holy Spirit, love. So build up your faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, love, extend mercy. If you look at that list, is it all about our attitude? How are we thinking and then acting? And again, the scriptures provide answers. Jesus says this way, if you're a follower of me, this is what you're to do. Two things, broad scale, two things. Love God, love people. That's it, straight up. Love God, love people. Jude puts it this way. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear. In other words, be cautious and figure it out. Do it right. So, this week, in the places where you work, in the places where you go to school, in your neighborhood, even in your own household, when people are arguing with you about your Christian faith, either through their words or they're just scoffing at who you are as a follower of Jesus Christ. When people are rude, when people are unkind, when they've got aboard the runaway cultural train that's headed for disaster, then you've got a responsibility. Start with some mercy, add some love, mix it with some wise judgment, or if you will, some caution, 
what wisdom. And then I guess I would say cover it again with mercy again. Because here's why. There's a fire burning beneath the actions of our world. It smolders and it's sending smoke into our very existence. And some Christians would say, man, I'm out of here. I can only hardly wait for Jesus to come. Jesus, get me out of this mess. And I get that on the one hand. But on the other hand, I want to say, the scoffers may bring, may bring struggles to us from time to time. And there may be smoke all around. But you know what God's calling you and me to do? We're to be engaged. Snatch people. Extend mercy. We don't have to panic. That's the point of Jude. Go back and read Jude again this afternoon. And what are you going to read? You're going to read that there are all sorts of crazies out there. All sorts of crazies. He lists them all, and, or a variety of them, put it that way. And some of the crazies are at your school. Some of the crazies at your work. Some of the crazies are in your neighborhood. Some of the crazies might be at your dinner table. Some of you might, you might be a crazy They strive to mess with your life and ruin who you are. And the scoffers, they may bring struggles to us from time to time. And there may be smoke all around. But Christians, we have this response. We are Christ's ambassadors. We are stepping into a marvelous and amazing adventure of soul and spirit that will change and is changing the lives of men, women, and children. And you may think, you know, Pastor, I'm not really up to the task. You're the professional Christian. You went to seminary. You, you get paid to be. You, you, you go figure it out. May I remind you of who you are? May I remind you of who is within you? The Holy Spirit is within you, enabling you to accept the challenge, to accept the adventure. Let me remind you of one more thing that might help you understand this. Perhaps you're familiar with Ernest Shackleton. So you go, oh yeah, I remember Ernest. No, you don't remember Ernest Shackleton. Let me tell you about him, okay? He was the British explorer of the early, early 20th century. Famous for failing. Famous for failing. Here's what he tried to do. He tried to, he had this ill-fated attempt to explore Antarctica and be the first person to cross the entire southern continent. And the trip ended in failure. They never did it. Their ship became, got stuck in the ice and was eventually crushed by the ice and sank. That's not, you go, well, why is he famous for that? Well, he's not famous for that, but he's famous for what happened in the expedition as the expedition failed. Disregard. Not one of the men on board that ship lost their lives. You know why? Because Shackleton hired for, hired, he hired the men based on their attitude rather than their job skills. His legendary job description puts it this way. Men wanted for a hazardous journey. Small wagers, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful. Oh, yeah, I'll sign up for that. <laughs> right? Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wagers, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Think about what he did there. In crafting the job description of his adventures, Shackleton targeted those who would be a good cultural fit for his team. He wasn't too worried about whether or not they could handle a dog sled, steer a ship, or build a fire in Arctic conditions. It was all about their attitude, what was inside them, what could be done, and what they could learn together. And may I remind you, friend, you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you follow him today, 
You are on a divine team with the best commanding captain available. Jesus Christ, the one who defeated the enemy of death, will defeat any runaway culture, will defeat any fire burning under your feet, and any eye striving to crush the life out of your soul. Anything that's coming against your life's journey, it's not about what you can do, but who you belong to. It's about, you've, you said, Jesus Christ, you are in charge of my life. You're the Lord of my life. And consequently, he's the one that's got the ship. He's the one that says, we will get from this side to the other side of the Antarctic or wherever it is, based on who I am and who I am in you. It's not what skill set you may or may not have yet developed. It's about the type of person you are. It's the person who says, I'm up for the adventure and I'm letting Jesus Christ be in charge of my life. In other words, there's a new inner me that's being made daily by my allegiance to Jesus Christ and my willingness to let all honor and glory and recognition go to him in light of my successes of the future. So this week, when the crazies come around you, and they're going to show up. Did you know that? They show up every week, don't they? And you go, I met this crazy last week. Just had different skin on. But they're back, right? This week, live in the fact that Jesus Christ is within you. Build up your faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep loving. Extend mercy in ways that are remarkable and God-driven. Because I'm convinced of who God is in you. And to that end, would you stand with me today in all three auditoriums, if you will, please? Because here's what I want you to be aware of very clearly. That... In the midst of all that we do as followers of Jesus Christ, we want to focus our attention upon him and what he's doing within us. And so to that end, hear this word of God today. That to that God, to him, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, Jude says, to the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, before all ages, now and forevermore. And you would say, Amen. Amen.